The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, Heritage. Hey, uh, if you don't recognize me, my name is Jeff. Um, I go here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really great to be back with you guys. Uh, my family and I have been on vacation. Uh, it's actually the first family vacation that we've been on and. Gosh, I was trying to go back. I think it might be four or five years, honestly. So it was much needed. But um, we got to go enjoy the uh, parks and humidity that Orlando had to offer, um, which was also a weird time to be there, as I'll get into a little later. But um, it's just really, really good to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I do have some announcements and stuff, but I just, Megan and, and the gang, thank you guys so much for leading us. Megan, it's great to have you with us. I know that's not easy singing for two, but we really appreciate that and uh, are super excited every time you get to visit. So thanks for coming to see us. Um, I, and I, I tell you, we, we were at, at Disney World, the one in Florida, and uh, you, you know, they do the stuff at night, the fireworks and the different stuff. And, and one of the things they do there, I'm a, I don't know if they do it at the one in, in California or not, but it, it's... They project stuff up onto the castle. So there's this whole show at the end of the night, and it's, it's all projected up on the castle. And there's music and lights, and it's unbelievable what they can pull off. And really, just they're just lights. They make the castle look like it's melting. They do all kinds of stuff. And at, at one point, they, they put this video up, and it's from uh, Frozen. And it's the Let It Go, or let, Letting Go, Let It Go. Let it, you'd think I would know that. I've only heard it five billion times since the song came out. Um, but that song's on there, and I'm like doing what everybody else is doing. I'm not watching it. I'm filming it. You know what I mean? Um, but, but I happen to glance over, and, and here's my daughters who are um, 12 and about to be 10, and just their faces, like, even though they're older than they were the first time we ever went to Disney, just seeing that magic, you know what I mean, on their faces, and they are just belting it out. And, and I just, I couldn't help, like I was overcome, like I was teary-eyed and choked up just watching the joy that my daughters feel. And I felt that again just this morning. There is nothing better than joining together with the family of God and singing the praise. If we can sing a stupid cartoon movie about sisters, we can sing to the King of Kings that has given his life that he might save the likes of us. Amen. It is a privilege. Amen. We can applaud the Lord on that for sure. Amen. Amen. Hey, a couple of announcements for you. Um, today, after service, there's going to be a newcomer's meet and greet. We're going to ask you guys, if, I don't care how long you've been here, um, but if you've been around for a while, we haven't got a chance to meet you. We're going to meet in the coffee shop on our way out just after service. It'll be just a short um, who we are and an opportunity to shake hands and meet you guys. And we really appreciate the opportunities that as the church grows, as the faces change, um, it's just, we love the opportunities to be able to get to know you. So I, I hope some of you will take advantage of that. Also, family camp sign up, start today. Um, there's no way I could go through the myriad of pricing and uh, there's, there's RV spots, there's cabin spots, there's tent spots, there's all sorts of places, all sorts of pricing. And um, all that is available at the table outside uh, or outside the sanctuary on your way out. You'll see that, but make sure you stop. It's going to be up at Lake of the Woods. Um, I was actually just up there Friday night and that place is gorgeous right now. I mean, Lake of the Woods is, if you don't ever go up there, you just totally should. It might be the most beautiful place around um, and just such a fantastic place. So we're really excited about that. Um, that'll be August 18th through the 21st. 
And then uh, next week is our first Wednesday uh, celebration again. The first Wednesday night of each month through the summer, we're gathering together, we're worshiping, we're having meals together, we're playing games. You guys remember last time, it was a overwhelming success. We had more than double the turnout we expected. The games were amazing. Uh, Sweet Tea Express caters it and donates all the money to um, a different organization each month. Last month, they blessed the pregnancy center here in town. This month, it's, uh, where's the Licatos? Jason in here? What is it? I don't see him. Jason's not in here. He's probably, I know he's here. He's serving somewhere, I guarantee you. But um, he, he is helping get together a thing uh, over the summer called Feed My Starving Children and all the proceeds that come from the food that we partake of. And if you've never had some Sweet Tea Express, oh, you don't even know. Like, you need to go. And um, so all that's going to be donated to them. So it's an opportunity to bless the community, feed some hungry kids by feeding ourselves, which is weird, but it works that way. And um, we just really encourage you guys to join us next Wednesday night at, I don't want to mess this up, Aaron, 6.30? 6 o'clock. Food starts at 6. So don't miss out on that. It's going to be a great, great time. Ice cream afterwards. Everything's going to be great. We eat a lot in the church. Um, And then... uh, that's pretty much it. So um, I'm going to mess with you one more time. So get the groan out of the way. I don't care. But could you do me a favor? If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter two is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible in just a second, you can wave your hand and someone will get it because we're about to stand up and they're not going to see us. So just hang tight. But, but if everyone would do me a favor, I want us to just stand together and we're going to read Philippians two verses one through 11 together. And we're going to open up our service in prayer. Philippians chapter two, Verses 1 through 11, and we're going to read together. I'm going to read from the ESV, but I don't care what translation you have. I don't even care if you're reading a Spanish Bible, whatever it is. You read what you got is all good. Amen? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, let's read it together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, a little louder, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we stand in honor of your holy word, the perfection of your word, its authority over our lives. And God, though the the singing part of worship is over, I pray, Lord, that the posture of our hearts would continue to worship you. 
Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be gathered here, Lord, for some meager Bible study, just some uh, moral lesson, not something to make us feel good, not paying pendants for the sins of the week or, or making church into some sort of good luck charm, expecting that we'll be blessed in the week ahead because we're here. But instead, God, may the posture of our hearts be one that gives you all glory, all honor, all worship. We are here because you are worthy of our gathering. We are here because you are worthy of our attention. You are here because you are worthy of your time. And Lord, we are here because you have saved us and called us. So Lord, we bow before you. We ask that your word would have its way with us. Lord, may you speak by your spirit to the hearts and minds of everyone here. Those who need conviction, may you convict them and show them, Lord, repentance. Those who need comfort, Lord, may your words be a balm of Gilead, Lord, the, the soothing peace that we need in our spirit. If we need direction, if we need wisdom, God, may you provide it with clarity. Lord, whatever it is that is needed here, we know that you are the source of everything we could possibly need. And so we turn our eyes to you. We ask that you would have your way with this church. And I pray, Lord, and those that would join with me, may you have your way with us as individuals as well. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, again, and I'm sorry, I should have done that part sooner. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. One of these guys will get it to you so that you can track with us as we're in Philippians chapter 2 today. We are actually going to be in a text that Pastor Jeremy taught out of a couple of weeks ago. Um, but we're going to keep looking at it because this is a huge, massive, incredibly important text. It's maybe the most commonly referenced text I ever reach to when I'm teaching from other passages of the Bible. I feel like no matter where we are studying, I end up going back to this passage, this chapter, these words more often than anything else that I ever go back to anywhere else in the scripture. And so it's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our attention. And I just, even as I was looking at the text this week, looking to move on to the next verses, I just felt like it was just still screaming at us. Like there's more to see. And frankly, we could stay here for a year, but we'll just take a week and stay one more time as we look at Philippians chapter 2. In verse 1. And, and if you're here with us visiting, I just want to welcome you guys to Heritage. I know it's summertime, so, so we're gone a lot and other people are here a lot. And there's just uh, always lots of travel. But welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. It, we're really, really blessed to have you with us. And, and I just want to, if I could, just for a moment, because this is part of what we're going to be talking about, just explain to you what kind of church we are. We are, without question, the imperfect church. If we would boast in anything, maybe we could choose to boast on the fact that we might be the most imperfect church in the valley, and we pride ourselves in that because, as Paul would say, we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in the power of God. And so here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, you'll see sometimes on our, our brochures or logos or whatever it is, it'll say, a gospel-centered church. And what we mean by that is we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety, which teaches us that God is the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. He is the master and Lord of all things who created every one of us, not accidentally, but with a plan and a purpose. But that in our, our weakness, we have all sinned against him, every single one of us. There's nothing in us that commends us to God. We have all chosen our own paths, our own rebellion, our own passions, our own sin, and turned our back on God. But the beauty of the gospel is that God's not like us, who tends to get worn out with people that keep abusing him. 
Like so many times, people want to drive us crazy, and they let us down, and they turn our backs on us, and at a certain point, we cut the cord and we're done. But God is so not like that with us. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is kind. And as he's seen the rebellion of all humanity for year after year after year, century after century after century, he had a plan all along to deal with it, and his plan was to send his son that God would become flesh, live on this earth, endure the same temptations we feel, the same weaknesses we feel, the same pains and disappointments and difficulties that we feel in this fallen world, and yet to walk that life perfectly without sin, never rebelling against God. That he went then to the cross where he died to pay the price for our sin and rebellion. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. In other words, our rebellion against God has earned death and separation from God. But instead of that having to be the case, Christ himself bore that on his own shoulders on the cross on our behalf. And instead, he says that those who believe in him are offered the track record he had. The 30 years of ministry, the 33 years of life he had on earth, that is the track record that is offered to the believers in Christ because of the punishment that he endured on the cross. He rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. And he's now in heaven where he is constantly, he is preparing a place for his people. He's calling his church. He's saving people through the proclamation of the gospel and through interactions, through relationships all along the world. He's calling his kingdom together. And one day our king is coming back. Man, I, I was looking at a, a tweet just this morning by Steve Timmis, who's one of the directors of the Acts 29 network, and he's in Europe. And there's this Brexit thing that's going on. If you know about it, you should. It's a pretty big deal. And he's over there writing about England and he's talking about what we need more than worrying about this whole Brexit thing is some sort of leader that can lead us as a nation no matter what we're in. And I tweeted him back and I said, are you talking about America or Europe? Because it kind of applies. There is such a leadership vacuum everywhere, but the beauty of the gospel is that the Christian knows that the true leader who will absolutely deliver us from the ills of society and the ills of a fallen world. He is alive. He is coming again. And one day Jesus will come. We will have no more difficulties, no more frustrations, none of these things. We will live in the world the way God intended it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. That's every sermon we ever do right there. You guys come here and you just hear repeat over and over. I hope, I hope that we just hear some form of repeat over and over and over. And this week, now we're in a text that has been looked at before that is maybe the most beautiful and concise exclamation of that gospel throughout any of the scriptures. But, But here's the question that it pushes towards us. If we really believe all those things are true, what's our response to that? I mean like, If we truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we truly believe that that king's coming again, and we truly believe what our king has done on our behalf, then our life should look a little different than if he didn't exist. And Paul lays all these things out, and he talks about that no matter what I'm going through, all the difficulty I'm in, he's in jail, as he writes this letter to a church that he had planted four plus years before. 
He's saying, because of all these things, no matter what I'm going through, I can find joy. Why? Because that king does exist. That gospel is true. I have been saved. I have been born again. I will be set free from my imprisonment, both my chains and even the the things of my flesh that hold me back. I'm going to be set free of all of those things. And Jesus is coming back. And so he can find joy. And he's going into, and really this whole book's about the fact that because of the gospel, life looks different for us. It's not the same as it would be if he didn't exist. And so chapter two of Philippians pushes hard on us. Like we we have a tendency to read it through the Thomas Kincaid lens, like the beautiful painting of a countryside villa someplace. And we write it on there and this whole passage is there or bumper stickers. And it's kind of like a, oh, thing. But the heart of this passage is to punch us in the soul. And help us understand, hey, Jeff, because of all of this, your posture is different than it would be if none of these things were true. If you are a follower of Christ, your life doesn't look the same as it would if he didn't exist or if you didn't believe. So this is a passage that is, it pushes hard. It pushes hard if we will take the opportunity to to really look at this. And And here's the thing. It covers something that is maybe the most important, the most non-negotiable attribute of what Christianity is and the thing that we probably as a whole and individually struggle with the most. So it's a big deal that no one in this room can sit back and go, glad I'm not struggling with that. It's worth our time. And, And let me tell you, this isn't a peripheral Christian thing. This topic today is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And so let's take a look. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing, and he says in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, pause. Now we're not going to go verse by verse and dissect every single word through here the way Pastor Jeremy did a great job of that two weeks ago. He talked about unity through humility. If you missed that out, please go back and listen to that on our website. But, but we're going to look at more big picture today because it's a big deal what's being talked about here. And so he starts off and he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. So let me ask you, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? If there is any encouragement of Christ, well, yeah, there's a great encouragement of Christ. What kind of encouragement? That salvation has come, and it's come to everyone. The Philippian church is made up with an entire diversity of people with total different backgrounds, different nationalities, different histories, different stories, different struggles, different gifts, different talents. And no matter what, salvation has come to them all. Salvation has come to them all. So is there encouragement in that? Absolutely there's encouragement in that. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, pause. Is there any comfort from the love of Christ? You guys were more sure on the first question. Let's try that again. Any comfort from the love of Christ? Yes, there's incredible comfort. The fact that not just salvation has come, but he's come to free us from imprisonment. He's going remember, Paul's writing this from jail. And this idea that the love of God has come to set us free. Whether you're like Lydia, one of the founders of the church, 
who had been a slave to either intellectual pursuits, chasing success, chasing fulfillment in her life through business and through money and through all these entrepreneurial things, whether it be the slave girl that was an absolute possessed by demons, imprisoned to a dark demonic world, whether it was the Philippian jailer who was so duty bound, so focused on what has to be done that if he were to fail in his task, he felt he needed to die, Whatever it is we've been imprisoned to, whether it's our history, whether it's our family, whether it's our background, whether it's our own emotions, our own desires, our own sins, whatever the case is, God, through his love, has come to set us free from all those things that are just always clawing at us. So there is great comfort in that. Whatever you're wrestling with, it doesn't matter. Love has come. Are you wrestling with depression? Love has come to set you free. Are you wrestling with addiction? Love has come to set you free. Whatever you're wrestling with, there's incredible comfort in Christ. Amen? So Paul's setting us up with some questions that have the obvious answer, yes, because he's going somewhere with this, right? If there are any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, what he's saying is this, if these things are true, And he's expecting everyone to say yes. Any participation in the Spirit. Is there participation in the Spirit? Of course there is. At the end of chapter 1, he's talking about, hey, one one mind, unified, together, participating in the Spirit. This is what he's talking about. If there's any affection, any sympathy, any of those things, he's expecting us to say, yes, Paul, there's all those things. And he's doing it to say, okay, then if those things are real, what? Like, there's got to be a result to that. It doesn't just like exist in a vacuum. It's not like, well, if the French Open tennis tournament's going on in France, what America? Well, nothing America. Well, we might watch it on TV, but it's on delay because it happened in the middle of the night anyway, and we probably already know who won. So we don't care. Whatever. It doesn't really affect us. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, look, these things exist and are real for you. Therefore, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one another. Think about this. He's coming out of Philippians chapter 1. And if you remember back several weeks ago when we were going through there, he pushes hard on this idea of unity, wanting people to be of the same mind. He wants the church to be together, supporting one another, loving one another, unified by the Spirit of God. So this is something that's really, really important to him. Jeremy, when he taught through this passage two weeks ago, talked about the idea of and the importance of unity as a church and how we achieve this kind of unity. This is something Paul pushes on throughout really every letter he ever writes. Corinthians, Ephesians, all of them. He's pushing on unity and unity of the spirit. And he says here, I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's saying in light of the gospel, these things being true, I want you to what? I want you to finish my joy, complete my joy. What does that mean? What he's telling the church is this. Hey, I started this church four years ago. I started a work by the grace of God and through the spirit of God, came to this area, started this church and it got up and going. And now he's in jail later and he's saying, hey, church, if the gospel's true, 
If there's unity in the spirit, if these things are going on, then complete the work that began. Make, it's like a father watching his children grow up and he says, I want I, that. Look at my son. He's walking in maturity. He's talking about, hey, church, as you grow up in the gospel, this is what you look like. That's what the emphasis of this text is. It's really important to understand. And what does it look like? He says this. Do what? Next word, nice and loud. Do what? Nothing. What does that mean? It means nothing. Do absolutely nothing in any area of your life whatsoever. Do zero things, no things. Do none of the things. Do nothing from what? Selfish ambition, or some texts will say rivalry. And the other word is conceit. So he's saying this. In every area of your life, church, because of the gospel that's come to bear in your lives, do nothing ever in your life that involves either one of these two words, rivalry or selfish ambition and conceit. Those two things never, ever, ever, ever have place as motivation for anything you do in any area of life ever at all. How many? Zero. Never. None of the things. Am I getting through? That's what he's saying. Selfish ambition, meaning a focus on personal success. Meaning the driving thing in your life is to win. Rivalry is another way it's translated. In other words, I have to be the best at this. I have to be prettier than her. I have to make more than him. I have to have a nicer house. I have to have a better car. I have to do this and this and this. My stories have to always be better than everybody else's stories at the campfire. All those kinds of things. Like I have to win. It's about me. And the other one, conceit. About me. Pride. I want glory. I want attention. It's about me. I, I want to feel people respect me. I want people to be in awe of me. I want them to hear my stories. I want them to see my appearance. I want them to see the things I own. And I want them to be in awe of me. Those things whether it be subtle degrees or big, huge, massive degrees, have zero place ever in any area of the Christian life whatsoever, anywhere. And then he goes on and he says, but, in verse three, which in other words, instead, if these things aren't a part of our lives, but, and he said, instead, this is what it looks like. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, time for actual Christian honesty. Are you ready? Is this hard? This is crazy hard. Anybody nailing this right now? Because if you are, you're preaching for the next half hour. This is hard. This is really hard. I mean, beyond the fact that we live in a culture that is so individualistic and is about fighting your way to the top and making a name for yourself and, and all those sorts of things, forget even all of that part, the cultural challenges we have in this world. Just in general, our nature is by default insanely selfish. And I don't even mean like mine, mine. I mean self-focused. Take care of ourselves first. Make sure we get ours. Make sure we get what's coming to us. That idea of taking care. No one loves you more than you. No one loves you more than you. And the Bible says, but because of the love of Christ that's been poured out on us as a church, our lives should look different and it shifts. And suddenly we consider others 
more significant than ourselves, that is incredibly hard to do. That doesn't just come naturally for anybody. The idea of you're supposed to consider the needs of someone else more than you. So in work, in play, in everything we do, there is a baseline attitude that is part of the Christian experience and it's a non-negotiable part of the Christian experience and that is the idea of humility. And Jeremy talked about this, not self-abuse, not I'll just beat myself down with an Eeyore, woe is me mentality all the time. I'm the worst. I'm a loser. Going on, you know, Facebook or whatever and all the time. Really just half the time we do that just looking for attention from other people anyway. But the idea of not making ourselves beating ourselves down so much, but the idea is putting everyone else around us first, considering someone else as more significant than you. No matter who you are, that person's more important than me. That person's more important than me. That person's needs are more important than mine. That is to be an absolute foundation. That's a driving factor. That's part of just the baseline definition about what it means to be a Christian. And the text goes on to describe actually what that looks like. And this is, the, this is the part of the text that we get all excited about when we're reading this. This is the one that's all quoted. This is the one that's on the posters or the bumper stickers or whatever the case may be. It's one of the most famous, popular passages in all of Christianity. But it gets looked at only as a description of what Christ has done that we might, in what he's done for us. And very rarely do we give it the actual attention that it's due, which means it's a command to us. It's what Christ did, but it's what you have to do too. It's who we are supposed to be as Christians. Look, Look what it says here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this is, it's it's beautiful, amen? That the king of glory, if anyone deserved to go first, If anyone deserved to have the most, if anyone deserved to be lifted up, pointed at, exalted, to have his way dominate the landscape around him, if anyone ever deserved that, Jesus Christ deserves that. Amen? But that he would willingly humble himself. And not just humble himself for the sake of humbling himself, but look, you know you. You know your weaknesses. You may hide them. You may not tell people them, but you know them. And yet for you, the king of glory would humble himself to the point of death. For you, Jesus Christ would do that. Don't let 2,000 years separate you from the reality that Jesus Christ literally went to the cross for you. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. That... I mean, let's just be honest. The, half of us, we have restaurants in town that are beneath us we would never be caught dead eating at. But, but Christ would humble himself from the glories of heaven to die on the cross for the sake of us? That's unbelievable. 
Like that is worthy of worship. If you and I never have another thing go well for us for the rest of our lives, Jesus Christ still deserves our 100% committed gratitude for that. Like we should never complain about another thing ever simply because what he's done for us, no matter how bad the rest of this life is. Because he has died for our sins and forgiven us because he loves us and wants you to be in his family. That's unbelievable. And it's what he's called us to do. Ooh, that's harder. I'd much rather just, let's just read the passages, what Jesus has done for me. Let's not go to what I got to do now in response. Let's not, let's not go there, Pastor Jeff. Grace, not works, right? But what Paul is telling us here is that this is the, the posture of the Christian in response to what God has done. The posture of the Christian in response to the humility Christ has shown us is a absolute, non-negotiable posture of humility. It is, it's not a non-negotiable. It's not something that, well, I'll get to work on that one later. It's a baseline, foundational part of what it even means to be a Christian. And listen, and I mean this, and this is a big statement and I mean it. You cannot accurately claim to be a follower of Christ if you aren't either growing in this, desiring this, praying for this, or walking in this. You can't. You can't be an arrogant Christian, ignore the call to humility, and say you're nailing it. You can't. It's part of what it means to even become a Christian. In the Beatitudes, Christ himself says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so you can't even become a Christian without some degree or understanding of humility that gets you to a point where you say, I just can't do this anymore. I can't save myself. I can't pull this off. I can't be my own God. I don't have the ability to save myself. I am not the answer to everything. I am not the center of the universe. Like, you can't even come to Christ but through that door. So it's a big deal. And we could see sins in others and we can focus on big time sins that, that make the headlines, if you will, from pornography to sexual addictions, drug addictions, all these sorts of things. But you hardly ever hear people talk about the reality or the need to be wrestling with their own pride. And yet it is a fundamental part of what it even means to be Christian. It's a huge deal. That the follower of Jesus who has been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ should understand his place before God, his response to the humility of God, and that that then affects the way he reacts with not just God moving forward, but with God's other people because we realize that Christ died for other people too. That he died that he might save. And so we have the same approach to others. First Peter even says this, First Peter 2.21 says, For this... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That the, the death of Christ, the, the fact that he humbled himself and died for others on the cross was not just the avenue into salvation for us, but also the example in how we interact with other people moving forward. That humility is an absolute necessity. It is a baseline foundational characteristic of who a Christian even is. And, and here's what I want you guys to see. This is such a big deal. It's not just in this text. 
It's not just in, in Peter. It's not just in the, the descriptions of the cross in the Gospels. But, but if the Bible were a wet rag and you could just wring it out, it would drip humility, humility, humility from cover to cover. The Bible is constantly preaching the importance of humility. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm just going to take just a minute to, I, I want you guys to see this. I want you to feel the emphasis scripturally of how God feels about our attitudes, our, our pride, our, our stature. About how the Bible constantly over and over and over is grabbing the weakest who aren't chest thumping and saying, I'm going to work through this. This is my chosen vessel. How the call to humility is constantly on the tongue of the writers of the scriptures, no matter what book of the Bible they're writing, no matter what era it is, no matter what country it is, humility is an absolute non-negotiable part of everything that this Bible teaches. You can, and you can go all, go back to Abraham, the first, I mean, take, aside from Adam, first big player scriptures ever come. If God's going to start a nation, if he's going to start a story, well, it's like baseball. You want a good leadoff hitter, get somebody on base, right? So he gets Abraham. Who's Abraham? Nobody. He's a nobody. He's a pagan in a foreign land that doesn't know God. He's, a, he's worshiping the moon. And God just happens to choose him and says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to use you to build a nation. I'm going to use you, this redemption story that I'm building that's going to be studied and learned and be the vessel of salvation for generations to come is going to come through you. You're going to have a son. He's too old to even have a son. His wife's laughing at the notion. There is no thought anywhere in Abraham's mindset that like, you chose rightly, God, I'm your man. There's none of that. And his failures are just as well documented as his successes. And yet this is the man that God chooses. And this is the man that God builds. And he, he exalts. He says, look in the skies, Abraham. See all the stars? This is what I'm going to do with your lineage. You're going to have a lineage like this. It's innumerable. What about Moses? Ah, Jeff, Moses. Now, you can't count Moses because he at least once was powerful. He was. Moses was a Hebrew, but he raised in, in Pharaoh's household, correct? Moses was a powerful leader in Egypt for many, many years. There's even extra biblical sources that tell stories of Moses' military conquest, that he had led military battles. There's, there's all sorts of accounts. He was the best trained, the highest educated. No Jewish person, no Hebrew person had the advantages that Moses did. You're right, man. He was cream of the crop. How did it go? Well, the Bible says that along the way, he starts to realize that I think God has a calling on my life and I think he's gonna use me to, to set all my brothers, the Hebrew people who are here in Egypt serving as slaves, I think God's called me to set them free. And it makes sense. I mean, he, I am second in charge here. I, I do have a lot of power. I do have a, a lot of military know-how, have a lot of influence. I think I can pull this off. And so he goes and strikes out on his own. He sees one of his brothers being abused and he takes that opportunity. You can read in Acts chapter seven, you see he didn't just have like this, this reaction, oh, they're beating him and oh, I killed him. I didn't mean to do that. It wasn't some crime of passion. Moses knew, here's my chance. I'm gonna show them who I am. I'm gonna show them I can lead these people out. And he goes and kills this guy and he's turning around expecting that Hebrew people are gonna follow him. And what's their response? Are you gonna kill us now? And then word gets out and Moses runs for his life and has to hide for how long? 
40 years in the middle of the wilderness as a shepherd. But you don't have to do too much Bible reading to realize shepherd is like lowest of the low in the Bible. And that's when God comes to him. And you see such a change in Moses' demeanor when God finally comes. Through the burning bush, God comes to Moses and, and he says to him, hey, I've heard the cry of my people. I'm going to use you to rescue them. And what's Moses' reaction? Me? I can't even talk. He literally says at one point in the Bible, he says, please pick someone else. And that's the person. He says, who will I tell him sent me? Because he realizes I don't have any authority anymore. And even when I had authority, it wasn't enough to get people to follow. And now you're going to send me a shepherd from the wilderness to go deliver these people? They're not going to follow me. I'm nobody. Who do I tell them? And he says, you, I am that I am. I sent you. And I'll be with you. And Moses goes. This is who God needs. This is who God chooses. This is who God uses. What about Gideon? You know the story of Gideon? He's hiding in a wine press during the harvest, when he should be up on a hilltop doing his work, he's hiding in a wine press doing it because he's afraid. He's hiding from armies that have been raping and pillaging their land forever. And God comes to him and he says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, huh? Me? He's like, um, I'm the smallest in my family and my family's the weakest in Israel. You got the wrong number. You should go somewhere else. Um, there's another Gideon down the street. Maybe you mean that guy. He's got some biceps. Like he's literally like, no, it's not me. He even keeps testing God. Okay, if you're, if you're for real, then let's do this. And he throws out the fleece and God does this kind of miraculous thing to show him that he's really there. And that's not even enough. He's like, okay, then let's reverse it just in case that was a mistake. I need to know. And he throws it out. It's kind of the first biblical example of a control and experimental. If you're a scientist, you know what I'm talking about there. Like this is Gideon. And he chooses him and says, you're the guy I'm going to use to deliver your people. And then even the way he goes about it just continues to prove the same thing, right? All right, so we get our guns, right? We'll take a few M1 tanks, a couple of F-16s. We need some stuff. He goes, well, here's a trumpet and a lamp. Good luck. Like, that's what he does. And remember the story, whittling the army down, smaller and smaller and smaller? The whole point of the story is that, look, if you go in there with a giant army, you're going to think it's because your army is just so powerful. And if I send a giant guy in there, he's going to think it was him. But, but I'm picking you. I want a humble man who's well aware of his weakness because that's the guy that will trust me. That's the guy that will follow me. That's the guy that will do what I'm telling him to do because he doesn't have any other options. That's a good place to be, by the way. Well, there's Gideon. What about Ruth? Ruth, part of the lineage of Christ, one of the most famous women in all the Bible. But don't forget, she's a Moabite widow in a land that's not usually really kind to foreigners, and she's on welfare. She's going through fields, picking up scraps, just trying to make a living, and that's the person God grabs and exalts. That's the person who becomes not only one of the one of the uh, characters in a story that's one of the most beautiful pictures of who Christ is, but part of the very lineage of Christ in general. He chooses her. David, David, I mean, King David, I know, but don't forget where he came from and don't miss the importance of this because when Israel needed a king and God grabs Samuel and says, hey, go over to Jesse's house, I'm gonna anoint one of his sons as king, grab some oil and head over there. And he tells Jesse why he's there. So Jesse gathers all the sons together. He doesn't even get David. 
His youngest son David's out in the fields playing a harp or something with some sheep. And he's like, well, I don't even... Let's, let's get him. Is everyone here? Uh, Dave, where's the, uh, don't worry, he, it ain't David. Let's just get the rest of you together. Like he, his own father is like, it ain't him. And yet what does Samuel say? He says, God looks at the, or says man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. It's a great phrase, isn't it? But you know what it means about David? It means if you'd have seen him, you wouldn't have picked him either. It means from the outside, you were like, Seriously? And that's who God chooses. He says, the man after my own heart. And he makes him into the greatest king Israel had ever known. A man who to this day, the people in Israel still revere and long for another David. David. What about Isaiah? Has that vision before the Lord? And what's his response? This is a mighty prophet. We study his words a lot. There's a lot of quotable stuff in the book of Isaiah that he penned down. But when God picks him, what did he say? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I am undone. And he falls on his face before the presence of God. You ever notice, by the way, in the Old Testament, especially you can see this, every time God shows up, nobody's like, yeah, I'm right here, man. No one does that. No one does that. No one's like, I knew he was coming, told you. Like, nobody even the most confident before God are on their face when he shows up. There's even places in the scripture where God appears, but there's no description of what God looked like. They describe the floor, literally. God appeared. What was it like? Well, the floor was like topaz and blue and enough about the floor. What did God look? I don't know, man. I didn't, all I saw was floor. Seriously. No one's chest thumping. What about the disciples? Oh, look no further. It, it, <laughs> rabbis in that day, when they were picking followers, they picked the best of the best. And you flunked out early in Hebrew culture at that point. At a certain point, I mean as a young boy, if you had not shown and displayed the ability, there was Bible memorization, there was all this stuff. They were constantly looking for the best of the best because each rabbi wanted to find a kid that was going to be his disciple, his follower, and he was so picky about it because he's saying, I want to make sure that who I pick can do what I do and will do it like I do. And they're not messing around. There wasn't Oh, that'd be offensive. I almost made fun of community college. I'm not going to do that. There, but there was no plan B, okay? Like, if, if you didn't make the cut, you got sent home, and you went home to take on the family trade. And that's how it went. So think about the disciples. Where are they when Christ finds them? Fishing. That means at some point along the way, a rabbi was talking to Peter and said, what's your dad do? Fishing? You, you might want to try that. They, they weren't the best of the best. They flunked out and they're fishing. And, and one of them is a tax collector. We get one educated or at least semi-professional guy. He's a tax collector. What does that mean? Most hated guy in all of Israel. He took, I'll take one of you. Like those are the people Christ chose to not just follow him, but to be the ones who after he heads up to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit, these are the people that he's sending out to start this movement that we are now still here a part of because of the work of the Spirit through them. He picked them, fishermen. That's who he picked. 
Consider like some of the miracles and some of the ministries of Christ. What about the feeding of the 5,000? He didn't do that next door to Chick-fil-A. There was a few fish and a few pieces of bread delivered by who? A little boy. And that's the miracle that's prevalent in all four of the gospels that we still study and are amazed at today. It's just a little boy making something out of nothing. It's a very biblical principle. What about the woman who's hemorrhaging, the woman with the issue of blood? Christ is walking through this crowd and, and she doesn't even, she's so embarrassed, she's so fearful of who she is and what she's struggling with and being considered absolutely unclean in that culture that there's no way she's gonna stand in front of Christ and say, I need your help, I need your help. She goes, maybe if I can just kind of touch his garment as he walks by, maybe that'll do it. And Christ is walking by, she does it and, and he stops and goes, who touched me? And the disciples are like, um, everybody? He's like, no, no, no. Power went out. Someone touched me. And this scared woman says, it, it was me. And what does he say about her? Your faith has made you whole. What incredible faith. And he exalts this woman who, in fear and humility, there, there's, oh, there's so many more. The thieves on the cross? As Christ is on the cross, there's a guy on one side going, hey, if you're Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, how about you flex a little and get us out of here? And what does the guy on the other side say? Do you have no fear of God? Do you have any idea who you're talking about? Have you no shame? We are here because we deserve this, not him. We are here, he's very aware of his sin. He's very aware of his weakness. He is in no way chest thumping as he hangs up there. And all he says is, please remember me. And what does Christ say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Even his teachings, the, the two that went into the temple, the Pharisee religious leader who goes in chest thumping, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all of these other people tax collectors and sinners and the like. I thank you because I have my act together. And another guy goes in and says, it says that he stood afar off. He didn't even have the, he was afraid to even come close. He stands afar off and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ says, that's the guy. That's the one who was exalted. That's the one who was brought up into heaven. There's, there's so many examples. I, Jeremiah Timothy, Elijah. There's so many examples over and over and over and over through the scriptures. The one God grabs, exalts, and uses is never the power player. It's never the chest thumper. It's never the arrogant guy flaunting his resume. It is the man who is walking in the reality of his weakness and who understands his standing before God and before other people. That's who God uses. And maybe nowhere do we see a more amazing example of it than in Luke chapter 1 in the actual incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because think about something. Let's make it Christmas Eve just for a minute. Think about this. In Luke chapter 1, God is about to do what is one of the most important apexes in all of human history. He's about to do something that will be more important and more significant than anything that has ever been done or will ever be done. God himself is about to become flesh. It is an apex in all of human history. And who does he do it through? A teenage girl in poverty who has no business being pregnant. That's who he picks. 
one who's going to ride a donkey to the hospital. Except it's not going to be a hospital. It's going to be a barn, a cave, a place for animals. Where she's going to have to wrap the baby up in scraps of material and lay him in a feeding trough because she doesn't have anything else. That's who she chooses. And when the angel comes to Mary to tell her what he's about to do, what God's about to do, he says, oh, you're blessed among all women. And it says she was bothered by this. She's going, who, me? And that is, he's like, oh, you are about to be exalted above other women. Like, it's almost like she's annoyed by, like, what are you talking about, me? I'm nobody, I'm nothing. And she goes on in Luke chapter one to write this incredible song. It's referred to today as the Magnificant. And in Luke chapter one, listen to the words that this young, poor, uneducated teenage girl, pregnant and not married, virgin, trying to figure life out. What is life? I mean, life not looking great from a worldly standpoint when you're in that position. Nobody's going to believe she's a virgin. Her husband, she's assuming probably is going to end up leaving her if this gets out because everybody's going to think that she slept around. She's already poor, already destitute. Not a lot of women's shelters back in the day. And then this is what she writes in Luke chapter one. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why? For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She says, that, that word fear, mercy on those who are in awe of him, who are bowed to him, who understand who they are before him, who give him glory, who understand it's him that's working. It's not her greatness, it's him. It's not her miracle, talent, stature, money, it's him. And this is at the very core. Like no one chest thumps before God in these positions. They bow. There is an absolute attitude of humility that is part of our entire Christian experience. And the reason is, is that the very core basis of what it means to be a Christian is an understanding of how small and weak we are. Like, do, like really, do you understand how weak we are? How fragile? When we were in Orlando, I told you guys about it. It's a weird, that was a weird week to be in Orlando. Every morning we woke up and there was something else. The first morning, a musician's at a concert just standing by a souvenir table, signing some autographs. I mean, that's awesome. Meeting her fans, signing autographs, that's a cool thing. And some guy that's not even in that town drives from who knows how far away, loaded up with guns specifically to blow her away. And like that, famous, didn't matter, gone, over. Fame and notoriety, no advantage, if anything, disadvantage in that setting. So we were like, man, I can't believe that. That's terrible. Go to Disneyland. Come back the next day, wake up, shooting. Worst shooting, worst mass shooting in U.S. history. And, and maybe the thing that was the most disappointing other than the mass shooting was some of the reactions I was seeing by some people that the world was referring to as Christians where they were saying things like, well, they got what was coming to them. Supremely unchristian attitude in the face of such a tragedy. So here's people, they're just going out on a Friday night, Saturday night, whatever it was, dead. 
I think there was a one-day break. While it was certainly affecting some things there, we're at Disney World, they find out that ISIS was behind some of this, or to some degree, security was insane. Just getting into the park was like the longest line of the day, which is saying something. And, and then, but we're safe in Disney World. It's the happiest place on earth. So as long as the people are in the Disney world, it's the magic kingdom, nothing bad's gonna go down, right? Especially a young family with a two-year-old boy walking on the shore of a lake and an alligator comes out of nowhere. The night before, we're at our place throwing bread to an alligator. Seriously. Do you really, who, who expects that? Like in a moment, it could be, a, we are so incredibly fragile and he is so incredibly powerful. The God who spoke all things into existence, that he would humble himself and take on that same level of fragility, that he would walk the same walk that we do, that he would live in that same manner, and then because of that, because of his sacrifice and dying for our sins would extend to us salvation? Christian, and I mean Christian, in light of that, as Paul would say in Corinthians, there is no boasting. There's no room to ever for a moment, as he would say in Philippians, to never, ever, ever look down your nose on another living human being on the planet Earth. There's no room for that. Because the very notion of being a Christian admits your weakness and his strength and also understands that he gave that strength not just for you, and yet, what's the easiest to find sin that you could find in the church? Man, we, the church can be insanely prideful. And we'll give everything from drinking to pornography, divorce, whatever, all those kind of things. We'll give those things all the attention in the world. And yet the foundational attitude and posture for any believer who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ is humility. It's understanding our weakness. And even flying home. <laughs> I remember flying home, we're, we're coming into Seattle. That is a long flight, man. Coming into Seattle and I have to glance out the window as we're starting our descent into Seattle and there's Mount Rainier. And it was just huge. And it was really cool because our plane actually flew surprisingly close to it. Which is massive. And those mountains, I always, whenever I see that, I'm always thinking, is there somebody climbing on it right now? A lot of people have died doing that. And I'm looking at the ridges, like, I wonder if people would climb up that area. I'm like looking at it from that standpoint. And then to think that Psalm says, in the presence of God, mountains like that, they just melt like wax. They're nothing before God. And in Orlando, the thunderstorms, every day, praise God for a good old southern thunderstorm. Man, I love them. They come out of nowhere. And the rain that comes, like, every raindrop is like a bucket size. You know what I mean? Like, you get hit with one raindrop and you're instantly soaked. And it's every single day. And it's awesome. But what, what did we just sing in that song that they introduced us to just this morning? I wrote it down here. The waves and the winds still know his name. I mean, the, the storms, Jesus just spoke to them and they stopped. He's huge. You small. It's a small world after all. <laughs> it's a small world after all. Sorry, it's still stuck in my head. That song does not go away. It's like, I'm pretty sure there's government brainwashing that happens through that ride, but 
This is what it means to be a Christian. Some of us should do some soul check on that. But can I just give you one more word of warning and we'll be done? In Mary's song in the Magnificat, not only does she uphold the beauty of how God responds to the humble, he exalts, but also warns us about God's response to those who don't humble themselves. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, thousands of, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Go back to our original text, Philippians 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. How many knees? Every knee. You will humble yourself one way or the other. You will bow willingly as a follower of Christ who is being brought into his kingdom, or you will bow defiantly and you will experience an eternity apart from the power of God. And that's reality. The Bible says it over and over and over. James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. But Luke 14.11 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The humble, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone will bow before God. But the follower of God who understands the reality of the gospel realizes that we bow before God and then we carry that same posture into our interactions with everyone. No matter how different, no matter how separate, no matter how sinful, wherever they are, we are not ever in any way, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never looking down our nose, working through conceit or pride or rivalry, but we are humble people, or we are to be humble people. Because the Spirit of God should be working in our lives to make us more like Christ. And so heritage... Be humble. That's a scary prayer, though. You know that, right? Lord, make me humble easily. (laughs) Right? But I pray for our church and for us, amen, understand the importance of this. So, So maybe there's areas where you've just pridefully mistreated someone, looked down your nose at someone, carried yourself with arrogance with someone, And I see it in everything from interpersonal interactions, relationship issues, to people arguing theology. Think about that, that you would pridefully talk about the knowledge of God who clearly says, don't be prideful. And we do it all the time. Who can I throw under the bus? What kind of Bible quote can I throw out there to make myself look spiritual and make me look smart? Or call someone else and make them out to look dumb? Stop. And here's the reality. Here's the beautiful thing. He says, these things are here in Christ. He says, have this mind which is there in Christ. The more you look to Christ, the more humble you will become. The more you try to look at everybody else and the more you look at yourself, the less humble you will be. So if there's an area of your life anywhere where you're like, where you're struggling with that, you're not looking to Christ. You're not looking to the cross. You're not seeing his example. Instead, you're trying to compare yourself to people around you. You have one comparison. Your comparison is Jesus Christ himself, and you fall far short of it. But that's what determines and sets the pace of our interactions with everyone moving forward. Amen?
Will you stand with me for a moment? This is response time. This is opportunity for God to do some heart work in you. No more listening to me. No more sitting. Maybe he's talking to the other guy. But this is about you and Jesus. And the spirit of God is here with us right now. And he wants to do some heart work in some of us. So maybe it's time to do some heart check. So let's just take advantage of this. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to to see if there is any wicked way in me. See if there is any way in which our hearts are being prideful. If we're treating others with disdain out of pride. If we have to be right. If we have to win. Any of those kind of things. Where is that in our heart? And Lord, by your spirit, will you mold us more and more into the glory of God? Let's do some work with Jesus. Bow your heads. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would move as we sing, as we close. That you would minister to the hearts and souls of your people that you would have your way with us. And Father, I pray against prideful flesh that refuses to bow. Whatever form that takes, whether it's a refusal to sing, a refusal to to pray, a refusal to admit our sin, Lord, I pray against that. And I pray, God, that your spirit would break through strongholds and that you would make us more like you for your glory and because of your gospel. In Jesus' name.